Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello again, fellow diggers. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock a production of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. I'm Christian Swain, and I am behind the mic in San Francisco. As the name suggests, Deeper Digs in Rock goes a little deeper, digging into diverse topics, all connected to rock music in their own unique way. Please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. If you love the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project, then won't you kindly consider supporting the project financially? We have links to Patreon and PayPal at rockandrollarchaeology.com. A dollar a month, a big 12 bucks a year, diggers, and we will put it to good use. Okay, business handled. So, I pulled into Nazareth. In 1833, a German immigrant landed in New York Harbor, 50-plus years before the Statue of Liberty beckoned. A trained luthier, he had apprenticed at the famous Johann Stauffer factory in Vienna, but was unable to perform his trade back home. The local guild made life unbearable. His name was Christian Frederick Martin, and he made guitars. Martin Guitars. In 1839, he moved out to Nazareth, Pennsylvania, joining the large community of German immigrants who were settling in that part of America. Since then, C.F. Martin and company have made some of the most notable acoustic guitars in the world. For years, I yearned to own a Martin guitar, and when I finally got one, I truly got what all the fuss was about. They are remarkable on every level. The look, the feel, the craftsmanship... And oh my goodness, that sound. There are other makers of fine acoustic guitars out there, but Martins have always been the benchmark. The standard. Look at the acoustic headstock of your favorite guitar god. Chances are, it says C.F. Martin. The original guitar god, so saith the subway walls in London, was Eric Clapton. Eric is a longtime connoisseur of Martin instruments. In 1992, back when music television played, uh, oh yes, music, anyhow, MTV hosted Eric at London's Bray Studios for a groundbreaking new show, Unplugged. It is probably the most memorable episode of a show that had a lot of great moments. The ensuing album sold 10 million copies. Unplugged earned Clapton six Grammy Awards, including Record of the Year, Album of the Year, and Best Rock Song. Eric used two guitars to play reworked versions of his own songs, traditional folk songs and Delta Blues, a 1939 Triple Ot 42 and a 1966 Triple Ot 28 Martin. A decade or so later, the 1939 Martin from that performance was sold at auction for over $700,000, the highest price ever paid for an acoustic guitar. The slow hand star power and that particular guitar's history had a lot to do with the astronomical price it fetched at auction. But make no mistake, Martin acoustic guitars are prized the world over for their quality and sound. 
Honestly, I'm not sure I would sell mine at all. Put it this way, someone would have to make me a pretty incredible offer many times what I paid for it. They are special, very special guitars. And for all you lovers of the wood music, we have a very special guest today. Dick Boak is C.F. Martin and Company's Director of Museum Archives and Special Projects. He has been with Martin since 1974. He also works very closely with the current president, Christian Martin IV, doing artist relations. Interestingly enough, this is Dick's last year with Martin. He will retire from the company on January 8th, 2018. So, let's tune up and have a chat with Mr. Dick Boak. today is Dick Boak, C.F. Martin and Company's Director of Museum, Archives, and Special Projects. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, Dick. Well, so honored to be with you. Well, thank you very much to give us some of your time here. Uh, I believe you are at the factory in Nazareth, Pennsylvania. That's right. We've, we've been here since 1859, and I'm sitting in the archives uh, just relaxing and talking to you. Very exciting. So let's get a little background on you. Um, is, is it true you were born within 10 miles of the Martin factory? Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, in the little town of Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, uh, literally 8 to 10 miles away. And, and uh, I discovered Martin after college. I went to college in, Getty, in Gettysburg. And, and I was a good hippie. I, I lived in California <laughs> on a commune for a while. Wow, all right. And came back to this area and started teaching art. And I had to drive right through, from Bethlehem, I had to drive right through Nazareth in order to get to the school uh, that I taught at, which was the Blair Academy. So now you are an artist by trade, first and foremost. Uh, uh, talk a little bit about why you became an artist. Well, you know, I, uh, from a very early age, uh, I was fascinated with vision. And the reason being, when I was six years old, uh, I had an accident where I lost my vision in my right eye. Mm. And actually, while I was in the hospital, I had both eyes taped shut for five weeks. Complete darkness. The bandages, huh? wow. Complete darkness. And when I came out of that, I was so, so happy to have any vision back that I became preoccupied with vision. And I started drawing from a very early age and, and um, just immersed myself in all things visual. So that's really uh, what drove my, my need for art and my need for uh, extreme detail. Yeah, so as you said, you went to art school. Uh, you, you made it out to California as a, as a, a real hippie and, uh, and then ended up back in Pennsylvania. And then I think you went to work for Martin in 1973. Is that right? Well, actually, I, I came to Martin for the first time to take the tour. I, I didn't know anything about Martin. I, I'd been trying to build instruments as an amateur ever oh. since I was about 13 years old. Mm -hmm. And these were terrible instruments, just, you know, very <laughs> uh, primitive, almost caveman instruments. <laughs> and I didn't know. I was a good woodworker, but I didn't know much about uh, how guitars were really made. And I saw a billboard for Martin Guitars in 1973, and I, I didn't know about it, and I stopped in and I took the tour. I was flabbergasted by it, and um, I asked the receptionist if there was any scrap woods, and she sent me around to the side of the building, and on that day, I, I, I hit the jackpot. I um, brought my Mustang around. I filled my car up with scraps of rosewood and ebony and spruce wow. and mahogany and mm -hmm. koa wood, and I came back an hour later, and filled it up again, and I was just so enthralled. I, I have to say that over the period of three years, I came back to that dumpster probably 500 times. <laughs> so, uh, uh, they, the they, process, they begin to start to wonder, you know, who is this guy who's going through our dumpster? Well, they were all Pennsylvania Dutch, you know, all very Germanic uh, workers at, at Martin, and 
And um, they got to know me at the back door. And the, the shop foreman, whose name was Harvey Samuels, called me the kid. You know? mm-hmm. And one day I was I was immersed in the dumpster and he came out uh, the back door and he handed me a, a stack of spruce that had little knots in it. It couldn't be used for Martin guitars. And I said, thank you. And he said, well, what do you do with this stuff anyhow? <laughs> and, um, you know, I had some jewelry boxes and I, I had a couple of instruments in the car that I'd made and, and I handed them up to him. To him, and he said, "Do you mind if I parade him around the shop once?" And and I said, "No." And he, off he went, and he was walking around the shop showing my instruments. Uh-huh. He ran into Chris Martin's grandfather, C.F. Martin III, mm-hmm. who at the time was probably about eighty-five years old. Mister Martin looked at my instruments and he said, "Tell that kid to apply for a job." Wow! So Just Harvey like came mm. came back to the back door and he said, "The old man says you should apply for a chop." <laughs> That's a C H O B. Wow, you chub. got that Pennsylvania so, Dutch accent down there. <laughs> that's right. So I went around to the front. I brushed off. You know, I was filthy, and I brushed off, and I, I had kind of an afro, and I tried to tuck that back a little bit. And I, I said, "I'd like to apply for a job," and and they said, "Well, I don't think we have anything for you." <laughs> oh. And, you know, I didn't really look like I was ready for an interview, you know? Right. So he said, you really only have one opening, and it's for design draftsman. And I said, well, I've been doing design drafting for 10 years, and I have examples of my design draftings in the car, and I've been teaching it for four years. So they said, well, we're really looking for somebody that has experience in woodworking. And I said, well, here's some jewelry boxes and lathe turnings that I've made from your scraps. And they said, well, we're really looking for somebody that has experience with musical instruments. And I said, well, here's two guitars I made out of your scraps. And the old man said, should I, I should apply for a job. So <laughs> reluctantly, uh, they brought... This sounds yeah, like it was meant to be. Up. Unbelievable. Well, it's, a, it's about being in the right place at the right time with yeah. the right set of circumstances and they said well you know can you start tomorrow and i said no i have to go to the bob dylan concert i can start on wednesday so i would have done the job for free they didn't know that (laughs) it was so great to be working at martin and i just you know i've been so lucky to have a career here for more than 40 years yeah, that is that is great. Uh, and, you know, let's face it, Martin is the premier uh, acoustic guitar manufacturer uh, worldwide. Uh, I have two myself, just so you know. But uh, Well, I don't want to broadcast it, but I have more than 40. <laughs> yes. And, it, and, yes, and like do. most males in the United States, my wife would probably appreciate it if I lightened up on my collection <laughs> a little bit. And, I know what you, you mean. Know, we have a rule in the house that if I buy a new one, two have to go away. Wow, two? Man, I only have one-to-one, so uh, you got to work <laughs> on your wife there. The trick is to buy expensive ones and sell the cheap ones. Oh, I'll, I'll keep that in mind. So <laughs> Now, you also play a little auto, auto harp. Uh, I've heard some of your uh, your auto harp music out there. So uh, you are fully committed to a pursuit uh, here, a life's work, huh? Well, I, I love the auto harp for songwriting and, and for the physicality that it brings to the music. And um, I also just bought a sitar that I really love, and, and I play a little bit of harmonica, and, and uh, I enjoy writing songs, too. So, yeah, I, I, um, I don't want to uh, leave this planet without uh, capturing all the songs that I wrote. Very good, very good. Now you've also you've had several jobs through uh, throughout the history of Martin in your your forty years there. Uh, you started off, like you said, as a draftsman, uh, and then I believe you ended up in the marketing department. Is that right? Well, we didn't have a marketing department at the time, Ouch. and and uh, after drafting, I I started the retail store, which is called the eighteen thirty three shop. Right. I was involved in prototype making for for a while. And then I got the job that I really wanted. I mean, because of my art background, I really thought that advertising was the right place for me. And I finally got that job and was able to bring uh, the advertising department in-house away from the agency that was uh, handling it at at the time. Mm -hmm. And that was terrific. And that lasted until MTV Unplugged came out with the Eric Clapton Unplugged show which uh, everybody started contacting me. What's he playing and where can I get one of those? And and uh, I did a little research and I ended up asking permission uh, with Chris Martin to contact Clapton and propose a signature model project. And this is something that we, we didn't really do. So Eric, of course, was uh, really thrilled with the idea. 
and it launched uh, several decades of signature model collaborations with virtually every uh, iconic musician of our generation. Oh, yes. Yeah. I, I've got to play a few of them uh, over the years. So those are wonderful uh, instruments and definitely, you know, giving the guitar heroes out there a, a chance to play uh, like the masters do. So you've uh, also written several books. Let me go through them. I think you guys redid uh, Martin Guitars, A History of Martin Guitars and a Technical Reference Book back in 1988. And then you also did yeah, Martin you know, Guitar Masterpieces in 2007. Is that right? Yes, the Masterpieces book really tells the uh, kind of behind-the-scenes story of the collaboration with with artists. It's kind of a handbook for artist relations, whereas the the uh, Martin Guitars a History and the Martin Guitars a Technical Reference, uh, Richard Johnston and I, um, Richard Johnston of Griffin Strings Instruments in Palo Alto, mm, um, down the street. We co-wrote we we co-wrote the book and. Uh, took us 10 years, and what we were trying to do is just make a really uh, reader-friendly reference book about Martin Guitars for for all of the uh, collectors and people that need to know. And then just recently, I think last year, you came out along with Jim Washburn, uh, The Martin Archives, a, a scrapbook of treasures from the world's foremost acoustic guitar maker. Yeah, and this was a, a really fun project that was initially uh, suggested by Hal Leonard. Uh, Hal Leonard has been terrific with with me in publishing a number of the books that that um, I've gotten involved with, and they they really wanted us to uh, to do one of these what I call an ephemera book, and by that I mean that there are pockets inside the book that contain ephemera and memorabilia and little catalogs and postcards and little pieces of Martin history. And so it was particularly fun. And um, I called upon my, my good friend, Jim Washburn, to collaborate on the, on the text. And I supplied all of the photography and all of the ephemera. Yeah, uh, I think there's six pockets in there, and uh, in the pockets you find all kinds of really neat uh, historical data. I think in the first pocket is actually a, a symposium in American Luthier from 1985. I think that's something that you actually put on. I did. I put the reason that's there, and it's a it's a little confusing, but the reason that's there is because I invited C.F. Martin III, who at the time was nine, 91 years old to speak at the symposium, and I made a recording of it. And it's an incredible speech and an incredible recording. And so this little poster references that. And in the early section of the book, in fact, if you turn the page, uh, the very first page that has the copyright information has a, a special code number that enables you to get onto the website where all types of extra material for the book are, are kept and accessible by book owners. So C.F. Martin III's speech at the symposium is uh, online for anybody to uh, download that, that owns the book. Yeah, I got so to listen extra, to it myself. It was, it was really neat. I mean, he talks about his love of wood, I think is what really comes out of that. That's right. So let's dive into this, because the book is kind of broken up into a couple of different sections. And, and the, the, the way I kind of looked at it was, um, you know, through the people. And, and obviously, it starts with Christian Frederick I, the first C.F. Martin, who began as an apprentice in the uh, Stauffer Luthier factory in uh, Austria, uh, I, believe, I believe Vienna. So how and why did C.F. Martin immigrate to America? Well, in Germany, uh, his hometown was Markenkirchen, uh, which is eastern Germany, and it was a violin maker's town, and, and the guild system was uh, in full force. There's still remnants of it today, but the way this worked is, you know, you would be a, somebody's apprentice for 20 or 30 years sweeping the floor, <laughs> and if you're yeah. lucky, they'd let you, you know, whittle on a neck or something. Well, Martin studied with Stauffer in Vienna and came back to his hometown expecting to hang out his shingle. And the violin makers said, no, you can't do that. You haven't served an apprenticeship. And they didn't let him practice his trade. And this didn't sit well with him, of course. Also, you know, there were several levels of middlemen that uh, paid the instrument makers nothing and kept most of the profit for themselves. So this was also a terrible situation 
Martin was mm-hmm. fed up with it, mm-hmm. packed his family up in 1833, and sailed to uh, New York Harbor, arrived in New York Harbor after three months on the water, and set up his shop in New York City near the mouth of the Holland Tunnel today. And he was successful there, even though they were pretty unhappy in the city, they were successful in New York, and they stayed there for six years before moving to Nazareth, PA, uh, which was a a German-speaking town that reminded them of their homeland and didn't have any of the uh, Violin Makers Guild problems associated with it. Oh, so that's why the move out to Nazareth. Right. It was familial uh, beautiful connection. Little, yeah, beautiful little Moravian town in the rolling hills of Pennsylvania with a little church steeple and, and uh, all Ger- German-speaking uh, Moravians from the same section of Germany where, where Martin had emigrated from. Ah, uh, uh, makes sense, makes sense. So what were some of the innovations developed by the Martin Company in the 19th century? Well, in the early days, uh, it actually dates to 1842 and 1843, Martin made a, uh, a prototype guitar uh, to bestow upon Madame Dolores Navarres Tagoni. She, I know nobody's heard of her, but <laughs> she was one of the most famous guitar players in the United States. She came from Spain. She played a Spanish guitar. She didn't think that Martin could possibly make an instrument better than what she had, and when, Martin, when she visited Martin and he presented her with this guitar, she was blown away. It uh, outperformed her guitar substantially. And it was the very first guitar that we have any evidence of in history that incorporated the X-bracing that Martin invented. So uh, X-bracing soon was utilized on uh, most all of Martin's instruments. And today, virtually every acoustic guitar made somehow owes its uh, origins to the X-braced Martin guitars of the 1800s. Yeah, I believe there's a, a, a painting of her in the book, along with a letter, or, she, or I think it's from uh, actually from C.F. himself, who's letting her know about this guitar that he's put together for her. Exactly, yes. There are key moments in terms of uh, innovations. I guess it's important to say that Martin built guitars of almost every conceivable size and shape from size five, size three and a half, size three, size two, size two and a half, size one, size zero, and then double O, and then triple O, and then orchestra model, and dreadnought, and M. All of these different sizes and shapes are what people know as the acoustic guitar. So virtually every guitar made today somehow uh, references the sizes and shapes that that Martin made in both 12-fret and 14-fret versions. So I'd say that that is a very significant thing. The mandolin and the ukulele that Martin uh, immersed himself in at the end of the 1800s and the ukulele in the early 1900s went on to pretty much define especially the ukulele, define what the ukulele was. And then in in 1930, Martin uh, experimented for Perry Bechtel, who was a banjo player, by making a a guitar that had extra frets. Uh, Perry Bechtel was used to playing all the way up the neck. Oh, from 12 Uh, to 14 frets is the the change here. Right, right. Mm -hmm. There was a big, you know, it's only two frets, but it was a big change, and it really was the birth of the contemporary or, or modern acoustic guitar. Mm-hmm. And I guess uh, I'd be remiss to not mention the Dreadnought. The Dreadnought uh, emerged in 1916 as a Hawaiian guitar with strings high up off the neck for slide playing. And uh, by 1930, was being made for standard play. And it coincided with the emergence of radio and, uh, you know, Grand Old Opry and Louisiana Hayride and all of those kind of early country music phenomena. And the result was that the Dreadnought uh, took off as, as kind of an ideal stage and radio instrument. And within about five years, uh, just became viral and, and became the workhorse of the entire music industry. Yeah, country music obviously took off. I think Jimmy Rogers was a, a, a big fan of mm-hmm. the Martin guitar, and he, he kind of uh, went out there and promoted it. I think you guys uh, did some stuff with uh, Gene Autry as well and made signature guitars for them early on before there were, like, really artist That's relations. Right. So, wow. Okay. Right, and Gene, 
Gene was still alive. Uh, Gene was still alive when, and we got to work with him directly, and that was very special. Gene owned the very first D forty five Martin guitar, oh, really? and used it in all of his in all of his movies. That guitar is on display at the Autry Museum and and is valued at more than a million dollars. And really, uh, in all the movies, it's a, a very famous instrument. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, between Jimmy Rogers influencing uh, people like Gene Autry and Roy Rogers, and then all the cowboy artists influencing people like Johnny Cash and Elvis Presley and Hank Williams and everybody, you know, it's it's a chain reaction of succession that, that uh, went on to uh, spur the, the creativity and the rock and roll and uh, folk rock and everything of the late 50s and, and 60s. Yeah, so let's get into the early rock and roll period, uh, which is where our, our audio magazine focuses on. How did the company take in the early rock and roll? Well, you know, we we tried to incorporate uh, electronics or pickups or sound reinforcement into into some of our early guitars with not much finesse or success, but but nonetheless, we dove into it, and you know, our guitars were used by uh, by people like Bill Haley and. Hank Williams that preceded that, and of course Elvis Presley uh, recorded almost all of his early hits with uh, the Martin guitar. Yeah. So it's hard to find any, really any artist uh, from any time period that wasn't somehow connected to our, our instruments. They were what everybody went to, to uh, either to write the music or to uh, lay down the recordings. I guess the electric guitar after... Peter, Paul, and Mary, and and uh, Bob Dylan, and Paul Simon, Simon Garfunkel. After the uh, folk music of the late 50s and early 60s, folk rock emerged, uh, and, and the electric guitar kind of displaced acoustic, the acoustic guitar a bit. Nonetheless, uh, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and Neil Young, and, and all types of artists from, from Dion, to Tom Petty, you know, uh, embraced the guitar and played buttons. So we did have a lull, and the, I'd say the lull was in the in the 1980s, the mid 1980s, when Casio keyboards and disco music took over and uh, really displaced acoustic music. And we didn't really see a resurgence until the late 80s and early 90s when MTV Unplugged gave a nice resuscitation to the to people's love of acoustic music. Yeah, which we talked about earlier with Eric Clapton and the guitar that uh, mm -hmm. that he played. Now, I believe that was a special guitar. Wasn't that from the 1930s? Late 30s, 1939. It was a, a kind of a fancy model, uh, a triple O 42, which, was, which had pearl inlay around the perimeter of the top. And was would be considered a premium, pretty special guitar. So the guitars made in that time period were Brazilian rosewood with Adirondack spruce. Animal hide glue uh, was used in the construction. Uh, everything was sculpted by hand, pretty much. And and the guitar, Clapton's guitar, was really very special. And and so we replicated it as as an addition. And um, since then, we started offering guitars that are called uh, part of our authentic series, which are made virtually identically to the process that was used back in the 1930s and early 40s. Yeah. Wow. So lately, electric guitars have been slowing down. The the next generation, uh, you know, seems to be interested in other pursuits. Uh, musically, the computer can do so much more, and I, and, you know, I know that's good and bad. I personally have a theory that the electric guitar has a distinctly 20th century sound of industrialization, and we don't really live in that age anymore. The instrument of choice fits the information age better, but the acoustic guitar doesn't seem as affected to this change. Well, you know, there's there's fluctuations in the acoustic market. There are fluctuations in the electric market. We love it when popularity of electric instruments uh, takes a dive. We, you know, we love it when acoustic guitar music surges, and it certainly has surged with uh, acts like uh, Coldplay and and Mumford and Sons and and um, Ed Sheeran, David Brothers yeah. and mm. Ed Sheeran and. And Jason Isbell, and you know, John Mayer. Uh, on and on and on. Yeah, John Mayer. Uh, there's the Americana music and the alternative acoustic genres that are, that are really driving a lot of acoustic music. But you know, 
what I guess what's good for one is good for all. And so, you know, we don't we don't wish the, the electric guitar bad. It's pretty easy to make electric guitars. You know, uh, you just take a block of wood and put it on on clamp it up on a table and let the computer router do its work. It's much harder to make a great acoustic guitar. Uh, all the work is buried on the inside in the in the bracing and in the lightness of the woods. And so that's what we're focused on. Uh, you know, fanciness doesn't really matter too much. It's all it's all about the craftsmanship and the materials and the design intersecting to produce guitars that have magnificent tone. So that's what Martin is about, in my opinion. I think other guitar companies uh, that are popular tend to try to copy us, but uh, have a difficult time uh, replicating the tone that Martin guitars are known for. Well, personally, I think you're right. Uh, some may disagree with me, but uh, I know what you mean. Uh, I, I prefer uh, the sound of the Martin over just about anything else. So now the company has literally been in the hands of the family since its inception in 1833. We've gone from uh, C.F. Martin the first, and I, I think um, I think C.F. Martin Jr. was involved for a bit. Uh, I, there may have been uh, an uncle or, or so that has been in, but now... Yeah. So C.F. CF Sr., C.F. Jr., then his son, Frank Henry Martin, and then his son, C.F. Martin III, and then his son, Frank Herbert Martin, and then his son, C.F. Martin, or Chris Martin IV, and then Chris has a daughter who is 13 years old. That's Claire Frances Martin, and she will be a key player in our business someday. Well, I, I was going to ask. So seven is, generations. Is she is she hanging around the uh, the factory, uh, rolling up strings and putting them in boxes? Not yet. <laughs> no, and you know we don't want to pressure her. Uh, it's, that would be a lot of pressure to put on a, yeah, a, teenage, yeah, a young yeah. teenage girl. Yeah. But we think that you know she will either emerge as the ch- the chairman of the board someday, or. Uh, on any level that she wants to be involved and we just let let time play out. But right now, uh, her father, Chris Martin, uh, continues to be the the CEO and chairman and uh, has had a tremendous impact on the success of the company over the last uh, 30 years. years, Let's talk a little bit about Christian. So in 1986, at 91, Frederick III passed away and the company fell to to the the current CEO, uh, Christian Martin. And he's been running the company, as we said, for 30 years now. I, I think the thing to discuss are the, the anniversary guitars. In 1990, the 500,000 guitar rolled off the line. Is that correct? Right. That's right. So it took, all uh, the employees, all the employees uh, that were currently employed signed that guitar, and that's part of our collection. And, and um uh, there was a guitar called the Peacock, which was made uh, to commemorate the 750,000th Martin guitar. Was that and the first in, in kind of inlay uh, uh, anniversary guitar? Well, you know, uh, I'd say it's the first time that, that it really sunk in that, that when we hit a uh, speedometer reading that w- seemed significant that we should do something special. Right. So we followed up about two years prior to the one millionth serial number being hitting, we started working on the millionth guitar and completed it in 2004. And it really uh, was arguably the most ornate instrument ever built. Oh, God. Um, So uh, Larry Robinson, uh, the inlay artist, Larry Robinson was involved in it. And he said that the the tediousness involved in cutting uh, more than 2,000 pieces of inlay Almost sent him to the uh, mental hospital. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> He's yeah. recovered since. Yeah, it's it's kind of got a tree of life motif. I call it the tree of life. Uh, but, yeah. uh, I mean, it is just a, a real beautiful piece of work. Folks, if you have not seen this guitar, go and Google it right now. You, you will be amazed. So, now, I believe there were 50 special anniversary guitars that were made along with it, uh, which was, you know, serial number 1 million and one to one million and fifty. Yeah, and those were called the D100s. And we often do that where when we hit uh, a, a specific milestone, we like to accompany it with a, a small and kind of prestigious limited edition. But I do have to say, even though I have tremendous respect for the art of inlay and, and the decorative uh, 
the work that goes into the decorative elements of these fancy guitars that I really want to reiterate what's what's most special about Martin guitars is their austerity and their tone. So I'm not always a subscriber to lavishness or, or fanciness. I do respect it, uh, and I do appreciate the art. Yeah, I, hey, I just have a plain old JC-16 uh, RA, and that is my workhorse, and uh, <laughs> it is a wonderful workhorse. Now, uh, to continue, because I, I'm just amazing at the sales jump the explosion that has occurred uh, with Martin over about the last 20, 25 years. Because in 2004, you hit 1 million. So it took, you know, over 150 years to get there. And then all Mm -hmm. of a sudden, by 2012, you have hit 1.5 million. And then just this last year, you hit 2 million uh, guitars sold. And, of course, you did a special one with a 1.5, and I think that was called the Da Vinci guitar. And then 2 million, Mm -hmm. which uh, you you just promoted at NAMM here this last year, was kind of – talk about that motif, which I I think talks a little bit about the history of of the company. It was a collaboration with a, a watchmaker in Pennsylvania, uh, an American watchmaker named RGM, uh, that makes beautiful handmade watches. And, and so the, the motif of the two millionth guitar was called the passage of time. And it involves uh, parts of the watch, gears and springs and things uh, that are enlarged into pretty dramatic inlays uh, on the face and on the back of the guitar as well as the fingerboard and headstock. And um, a special, a very, very special watch was made entirely by hand and installed into the headstock of the guitar. So it is a a lavish and ornate instrument. And there is a special edition of instruments called the D200s that are accompanied by a watch, uh, a special watch. And they um, are a little expensive. They retail for $150,000. And the watch comes along for the ride. That's amazing. And yeah, I believe the the guitar we call the Passage of Time, which, you know, again, you guys are not too far away from your 200th anniversary here. Uh, So you better start preparing for that. I can imagine what that guitar is going to look like. And we're approaching our 2.5 millionth guitar. Oh, <laughs> unbelievable! It's it's just it, it, the numbers are unfathomable. So uh, you know, and, and what's unusual about that is that, that our motto. There's a, a sign that hangs in our museum that has our motto, which is "Non multa sed multum," which means not many but much, or quality not quantity. Quality, and yes. and what what Chris Martin did is is he vertically integrated our line so that we have we have lots of different lines from tiny little backpacker guitar to the little Martin guitar to the Dreadnought Junior guitar to the uh, 15 series, uh, the Road series, the 15 series, the 16 series, the 17 series, and then the standard series guitars, and then the vintage series, the golden era series, the authentic series, the limited editions, and then the custom shop. So we have a huge vertical integration of, of different lines of guitars to hit virtually every price point and every need that any guitarist would ever want to have. And um, I think that's what has driven the incredible growth under under the direction of Chris Martin. So let's talk a little bit about the, the factory and, and the museum, especially. Uh, as you said, you know, you got to take the tour here uh, back in the day, and that was prior to, uh, to the museum being set up. So how and why did the museum get put together? Well, once again, I have to credit Chris Martin because the museum was a significant expenditure, say uh, between six and seven million dollars. And and so when business was extremely good, and it's been extremely good under Chris's direction, he made the commitment to basically demolish the front of the existing Martin building and build out toward the curb with the new Martin Visitor Center and Museum, which was a significant investment and included extra office space, extra retail space for the 1833 shop, a picking parlor, a wall of fame, uh, a beautiful lobby where we have events, and also the incredible museum, which is, I think, one of the one of the finer instrument museums in the United States. So I was charged with the task of filling the cases, and the cases are set up in, in chronological order, starting 
with the beginning of the company in 1833 through 1839. Then the next, the next case moves into the Cherry Hill time period from 1839 to 1859, and then gradually through the Civil War and, and uh, World War One and World War Two, and weaves through the history of American music and culture, and at the same time tells the story of, of how the guitar evolved from a tiny parlor instrument played by women uh, into the, the uh, incredible success of the Western style acoustic guitar today. Wow, I can't wait to get there and uh, and see it. Like the song I played uh, coming in, the band's The Wait, you know, <laughs> get into Nazareth, Pennsylvania, right? Nazareth, PA. So That's what, right. what, of all the historical guitars on display, which is your favorite and why? Well, you know, I have several favorites, but I, I guess I should say... There are kind of three that I go to when I, I love to open the cases and, and have, you know, if John Mayer comes to the factory or somebody wants to play a very specific instrument, it's really nice because the instruments get lonely in their, in their case. They don't want to be locked <laughs> no. up like that. Yes. They want to be played. Right. These are great instruments. So there's one that's the one of the very, very early dreadnoughts called the Ditson 111. It's from 1929. It's, a, uh, it's set up for standard play. It's made of mahogany. It weighs nothing. It, it feels like you're holding a potato chip. Wow. And it just sounds sounds like a breathy, crystalline. It's just incredibly powerful with a clear, kind of strong on the bass, but very clear trebles and just a magnificent, breathy sound. So that's one of my favorites because it's so simple and so austere. Then we have uh, a D45, which is kind of the opposite. It's pretty lavish. It's made of rosewood. It's a little heavier. It's from 1942, and it represents uh, really the very best of what the modern guitar is. That guitar is magnificent. Uh, I would value it at about a half a million dollars because of its its rarity. We use these guitars as benchmarks to uh, keep us honest and, and to remind us what's important about the tone of Martin guitars. So that particular instrument is very special. We also have an OM45 Deluxe uh, from 1930, which was one of the very first 14 fret guitars made. In fact, Roy Rogers uh, bought one of the very first ones. And this guitar has, uh, as opposed to the Dreadnought, has more of a balance between bass and treble. Mm. Dreadnought is is very strong on the bass and terrific for vocal accompaniment. But the, the orchestra model, which is a smaller body, a, a triple O body, has more of a, a balance, more evenness up the neck. So that for a finger-style guitar player like Lawrence Juber of Paul McCartney's band Wings, yeah, who we he would gravitate. Here a couple of months ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so he gravitates towards this type of guitar that has more even evenness of tone, more balance between the bass and the treble, and it certainly, in my opinion, represents the sweet spot of tone for acoustic guitars. Ooh, I think that's the one I'm going to make you pull out when I get there. So absolutely. We talked a little bit about Claire Martin, the the future and the family here. What uh, what do you think the company's future is, and what are, what are you guys working on that maybe we can expect here soon? Well, you know, there's a lot of challenges with the acquisition of wood, the uh, restrictions that have been put on uh, some of the species, uh, starting with Brazilian rosewood and yeah. and the the uh, convention on the international trade in endangered species. Certainly, the species are not endangered from as a result of the guitar market, but we're suffering a little bit uh, the result of the misuse of uh, or the misforestation of woods. And so we're having to experiment with uh, alternate, alternate species uh, in order to be prepared for the future. And, and interestingly enough, what we found is it is possible to make acoustic guitars that are great with a, a multitude of other species of woods besides the traditional species of mahogany, rosewood, and koa. And so we've been uh, utilizing a lot of these new alternatives and, and educating our clientele, our, our guitarist customers, about the viability of these woods. And I think that will play a big part in the future. We've also, of course, been riding the wave of acoustic sound reinforcement. Larry Fishman of Fishman Transducers has been collaborating with, 
with us for many decades. Mm-hmm. And now almost half of the guitars that we offer come with some type of uh, sound reinforcement. Of course, we're still known for the integrity of our pure acoustic guitars, but uh, acoustic electric and the use of pickups is prevalent and uh, pretty desirable for home recording and for coffee house or stage use, even for Madison Square Garden. So we're very committed to acoustic electric instruments as well. And we've seen a, uh, a resurgence in popularity of the ukulele. So we're fully immersed in ukulele making these days as well. Very cool. Very cool. So I know you and, and Chris Martin had a lot to do with building this artist relationship, which didn't really exist so much prior to that. Uh, and we talked a, about a few of them. Obviously, Eric Clapton be a, be a big one in the, the history of the company. But what are some of your favorite relationships that you've worked on? What's, what's the one you tend to remember more than, than others? Well... Boy, that's a, it's a tough question to answer because that's, there are so I'm many. That's why I for the last. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, Steve Miller has become, uh, you know, such a, a fantastic friend and advocate for the, the guitar. I guess that's why they call him Stevie Guitar Miller. Yeah. I'm actually headed to Philadelphia to show him my sitar tonight, which will be great fun. Oh, Peter I, Frampton is all, Peter Frampton is uh, touring with Steve, and Peter. Is also uh, uh, somebody that I did a great project with and who I have a tremendous respect for. I have to say that Mark Knopfler of Dire Straits is, uh, because of the touch that he lends to his unique style of play, mm-hmm. he's one of my favorite songwriters and certainly one of my favorite guitar players. I uh, really enjoy him on a number of different levels. He's also an extremely warm and generous individual that's not spoiled by fame. So I'd have to point out Graham Nash as being a, a real consummate gentleman. And he wrote well, the forward to, uh, so to many. the Martin Archives as well. He did. He did. You know, uh, he, he's just accessible and kind and the kind of person that it's fun to sit down and just talk to, you know. Uh, there's no presumption of being more special than anybody else, just a, a regular great human being. So that's what I appreciate. And, you know, I've appreciated that in people like Paul Simon, tremendously talented and uh, so committed to producing great music and and pushing the envelope constantly. So there's just so many. I, I can't even begin to deal with them all. I know I put you on the spot there, Dick. Well, hey, I personally cannot wait to get out to uh, to Nazareth and uh, and take the tour. And uh, it's been a great pleasure having you on Deeper Digs and Rock today. Almost 200 years going. The C.F. Martin Company looks to be headed well into the third century just fine. Yeah, we're not going anywhere. And, you know, you mentioned the, the song Pulled Into Nazareth by the band, uh, the song The Wait. Yep. And Robbie Robertson, uh, I was not aware of this, but uh, it is about Nazareth, PA. He was busy writing the song up at Big Pink uh, outside of Woodstock, and he had a legal pad. He had the tune. He just didn't have any lyrics. So he, he started to write, I pulled into... And he didn't know where he was pulling into. He looked inside the D28 that he was playing, and and there on the inside of the backstrip, he saw Nazareth, PA. And he he told me he wrote, pulled into Nazareth. And from that moment, the rest of the song wrote itself in five minutes. Well, there you have it. That's a great story to end on. Dick, it's been great (laughs) having you with us today. We look forward to all your endeavors. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. My pleasure. I just need some place where I can leave my head. Hey, mister, can you tell me where a man might find a bed? He just grinned and shook my hand. No was all he said. So now you know the real story behind Robbie Robertson's creation of The Weight. We just love playing that song. I'm kind of sad that Dick is leaving Martin. He really has been the guy, always willing to talk about these glorious instruments for decades now. He will be sorely missed. But Diggers, I've been invited, 
and I'm putting a trip together as we speak. Hopefully, we will have something even deeper in the near future, so stay tuned. We sincerely want to thank Dick Boak for the chance to sit down and discuss all things Martin and want to thank him for the service he has done for music over the last 40 years. He really is a special guy. Please go check out all of Dick's passions at dickboak.com. All right, friends, off we go until next time. I think I'm going to go pick up my Martin and do some practice before the next gig. I'm Christian Swain. And this has been Deeper Digs in Rock, a production of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Keep up the rockin'. It's empty in the valley of your heart. The sun, it rises slowly as you walk. Away from all the fears and all the faults you've left behind The harvest left no food for you to eat You cannibal, you meat-eater, you see Looking for ways to help right the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.